Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Chris Hans. And I'm Eric Christensen. And welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Good afternoon, Chris. It's been a long time. I feel like we haven't recorded a co-host episode in forever. We banked a whole bunch of them. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, I guess a lot of it has to do with your personal news. It's it's my fault. I am very much looking forward to recording today, though. I was starting to miss you. I was like, this is not fun because we have a regular thing going, uh, talking about stuff, and it's weird to have a big gap. But we did do some interviews, uh, including our interview with Jim Gibson, which is out, and and we'll have some more in the future. But yes. Um, I bought a house, uh, so I have moved to, uh, an undisclosed location in the Southwest of Calgary. I will not reveal it, um, publicly, but I live in the Southwest of Calgary, purchased a home, moved in, uh, surprisingly was smooth. I don't have any catastrophes. I was told a long time ago that three moves is a fire. I don't know if that's true. Um, we got a U-Haul. The U-Haul was there. I hired some folks to help me move the stuff I packed into the U-Haul and unload it. Um, that was all fine. We don't have a lot of stuff, so the house is ready to go. And now I'm recording from, I guess, the new command center. Uh, for folks who don't know, that's what Chris and I call our uh, recording and workstations at home. So... I have a new command center uh, in the basement. Essentially, the basement is mine. It's it's one large room. And yeah, yeah. so I think it sounds pretty good. Yeah, I think you're going to have to share some pictures of the, the new command center. I can share some pictures. I could probably post it and put a link, a short article, and post a link to uh, the show notes. It wouldn't take me very long. Eric's new command center. It's pretty straightforward. Um, it's a large room. I don't have a bedroom in the basement. So I hope it's not too echoey, is it? I haven't done any soundproofing. I have made zero attempts so far. I'm not the, the best to tell you that. So <laughs> we'll see. I'm in a wide open area as well. So I don't, I don't mind a bit of echo, to be honest, or a bit of reverb. I don't think it sounds bad. Um, I don't need to sound like I'm in a closet. But anyways, it's, it's set up. It's good to go. Um, you know, command center, man cave. I don't like the term man cave. I feel makes me sound like a Neanderthal. That's not, that's not what I aspire to be, but it's, you know, television downstairs. We have, I've never had two TVs before in my life. This is a big deal for me. I've always had one. Uh, so now there's an old television downstairs, old 42 inch flat screen. Um, so I can hook up the Nintendo 64, all of this cool stuff. Uh, I don't know. It's kind of nice to have more room for my stuff. I've lived in a, a condo for a long time or apartments. I've rented a house, but never owned one. So this is good. It's a big step. Now I have to pay this, this huge mortgage. But that being said, um, it's probably good that we get into our ed tech office hours. This is a little bit of a security focused ed tech office hours today. I had a question uh, from a colleague uh, at my place of work, which is interesting. Uh, we're on summer holidays right now at Mount Royal, so I, I typically don't get a lot of questions, but I did have a question from a colleague, uh, not in the library, outside of the library, 
about so this about security. So this is kind of a technical question, but kind of not. He wasn't asking for a um, a device recommendation. Uh, this colleague was interested in learning more about security and some of the repercussions for uh, research, but also uh, personal reasons. So uh, the question was, could you recommend any books or resources about computer security for a beginner? So uh, it depends what you want to learn about. Um, I mean, there's a ton of courses out there on the basics of security. And you and I have, Chris, have talked about, you know, best practices, use a password manager, have long randomly generated passwords, have a secure network, don't leave a, don't have an open Wi-Fi network that anyone can jump on. There's a few basic things, but when it comes to the implications of computer security from a nation um, scale or company scale, there's a lot of great books out there. I would recommend uh, a longtime security expert. I've followed him for many, many years. His name is Bruce Schneier. Uh, he ha Bruce, uh, Bruce Schneier, I think it's Schneier.com or Bruce Schneier.com. He has a blog called uh, Schneier on Security, which I can put in the show notes. And he wrote a, a book, which I thought was great, called Click Here to Kill Everybody. <laughs> it's kind of a brutal title, but he talks about um, how small errors and problems uh, in a super hyper-connected world can become essentially a big deal. So I think it's, it's, I wouldn't, it's not an alarmist book. It's a sobering book. And I have a great respect for Bruce Schneier. He's a really, really smart guy. His blog is really interesting. Uh, that would be a fairly good entry into at least, uh, book titles for security. Um, he's, and he's written some other books as well. If you don't want to go for a book and you're interested in something weekly, like up to date, because of course technology books go to date very quickly, you could also try the, uh, the Security Now podcast. That's on the, the Twit TV uh, podcast network. Um, I've probably been listening to Security Now for about 10 years. It tends to be a little bit more technical, so it'll cover the latest breaches. I don't always understand everything that happens in, in these security podcasts because, um, people like Steve Gibson, who's on, who, who, does, who hosts that podcast with Leo Laporte has unbelievable technical knowledge. He's a programmer, security expert, but it is very helpful in understanding what are the big breaches that have happened. So there was actually a recent, uh, vulnerability in windows, for instance, that had to be updated. And we're going to talk a lot about windows today. Um, so that was helpful. And he kind of explains why it was a big deal. So he goes through the latest breaches and things like that. So that would be my recommendation. Uh, the second question was also security related. And it was a simple one. How do I know if my email has been hacked or been part of a breach? So there is a website. Chris and I were joking if using the website exposes you to a breach. That was my first thought when I used it, but it's called haveibeenpwned.com. So have I been, and then pwned is spelt uh, P-W-N-E-D.com. So there's some dispute if uh, pwned is pronounced pwned or owned, but I've always say pwned because I think it sounds funny. So what you can do is you can take any number of your email addresses, um, you can type them in, and they have a database of emails that have been part of 
large data breaches. So I just put in my personal private email. And to my chagrin, my email was involved in uh, two data breaches, uh, one relating to GitHub accounts where they found your email name but didn't get your login uh, details. I've since changed it. And there's uh, there's some other one regarding search and stuff like that. So uh, that's a an interesting site. Uh, it, it won't tell you how to fix the problem, but it'll at least tell you what the breaches were so you could go in and, and you know, change your account information. One thing that I would recommend for people who have a lot of online accounts, other than using a password manager, I'm pretty selective about which accounts are connected to my personal private email versus a separate email. So I have a Gmail account I don't give out. I use it for shopping accounts and a bunch of stuff like this. My personal private email, um, because I, I don't give that email out, I connect it to those things that matter and I have another email account for everything else. And the other email account is set up to forward to the uh, personal one and, and then and not keep a copy of it. So I, I never miss anything. Uh, so those are our security questions. Yeah, and I think those are just some good best practices. I mean, even just, I found it interesting this past uh, semester, I had some students because I was teaching this technologies um, of innovation course. And um, some one of the things is that the students actually have to sign up for a number of different accounts to try out the software and applications and other things. And I, right from the get-go, I suggested that, you know, that you create fake email accounts just for the purposes of that course. And then you can just go and delete it afterwards. Or maybe there's, a, I know some uh, platforms, they actually even have alias uh, emails. And so I, I know with Apple, for example, uh, as we talked about in the, uh, the last uh, event, they're planning on actually creating aliases that uh, can expire after a certain while. I've used Outlook.com in the past, and they have alias uh, abilities. And so, you know, that's I think that's a, just a very smart thing. I mean, one of my uh, good business colleagues, partners, uh, he was uh, telling me a story of when he was first going to school and uh, this was back in like junior high or what have you and uh, the teacher asked everybody to sign up for a hotmail account back then and everybody put in their name for the most part but he didn't he just made up some fake alias pseudonym or whatever and the and the teacher actually asked him why why did you do that and he goes well i don't know what this is why why should i give my real name and my real information and uh, you know that's a good point and i i haven't read this other book that you mentioned like the bruce schneier one uh, but i it is interesting because even some of those things uh, another book that i would maybe suggest to people if they're interested uh, it was written several years ago uh, but there's a professor up at the ufc uh, his name's dr tom keenan and he wrote a book called techno creep and it's uh, the surrender of privacy and capitalization of intimacy uh, where he touches upon some of the more creepy aspects of tech and um, some of the implications. And I think Shire is kind of building on some of those things, but like, you know, uh, some of the basic things, especially with the, um, uh, when you look at with technology and certain devices, like the internet of things where people could hack into your thermostat and then crank up the heat. The reason for that is that uh, these uh, 
platforms, let's say if it was the Google Nest or some other uh, products, the internet of things, there is no standardization. And so really the only thing that you can do is you gotta go and uh, create two-factor authentication so that people don't hack into your accounts or into your security system. If they allow for it, in which that's the other big problem is a lot of these devices, they you have to enable that. It's not by default. So let's say if you have uh, uh, the Ring, for example, right? Like the Ring suite of products, you actually have to go and enable it. And maybe now they've made it by default after all the breaches and so on. But, you know, for the, the lay person, they might not know how to go and enable it. And it really, I think some of this is more of an aspect of maybe just privacy by design. And there is a movement for that uh, where things should just be private unless you opt in for certain things. Well, that's, right? an, that's an interesting point. So if, if, you're, if you're interested in security in particular because you're an Internet of Things smart home, smart device user, uh, it might be worth your while to subscribe to uh, a newsletter about the Internet of Things by a person called Stacy Higginbotham. I can put that in the show notes. Uh, she has a really good newsletter about the Internet of Things. But she does mention that um, distributed computing, where there's a computer in everything, the downside is that, well, the upside is that it's cheap. Oh, look, I can get this $10 Internet of Internet connected, whatever. It's from China. That's not a knock on China. It's just where everything's made. And uh, it has no security. It'll never get any updates. It's a throwaway product. So you've invited, by putting all these things on your network, you've A, you're using a lot of bandwidth, but you're also um, opening yourself up to so many more areas of failure. When computers were, you know, shared family devices with multiple profiles, it was a little bit easier to secure because it's kind of like one point. Um, it's more and more difficult with the Internet of Things. Uh, and, you know, garage door openers, I mean, those have been shown to be hacked. Like you said, thermostats, uh, smart locks, that's a concern because, you know, it's convenient until somebody can find a way to, uh, you know, use some, uh, you know, RFID or a local network device to kind of hack into it and unlock your doors without even having to steal a key or break a window, right? It's a lot harder to break into a safe if it's a, if it's a dumb safe. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's something to consider, uh, Internet of Things devices. I'm not a huge Internet of Things user, so I don't have a lot of advice other than to be careful about what to look for. Well, and, and that's the thing, right? Like, I, There is a convenience factor for sure, right? Like, I mean, let's say, for example, um, I do have a Nest thermostat. And uh, one of the things, it's, uh, you might think that I'm like a, a bit paranoid, but I, uh, Google obviously has bought out Nest. And so... Uh, every time I open up the app, it always asks me to go and create my Google account. Yeah. But I still, to date, I have never done it because I know as soon as I do that, uh, I'm sure that Google is going to be collecting all sorts of information. Right. And, um, and so I just keep it on the, the basics. And to be honest, I mean, it's uh, the only nice feature is, let's say if I'm out somewhere and it's cold, you can turn on the thermostat and heat up your home beforehand. But uh, other than that, uh, our 
actual weather in Calgary area, it fluctuates so much. I, I don't think the algorithm is suited to go and, you know, self-balance uh, the temperature settings. But uh, again, I, I think, you know, part of uh, even when I've done talks on uh, the social and privacy implications of technology, uh, one thing that I often say is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, uh, you know, that convenience factor while there might be, you kind of have to look at whether the benefits outweigh the negative consequences. Yeah, and I think you gave a good piece of advice uh, a few episodes back, Chris, that if, especially if something is free or doesn't have a cost to it, uh, then you become the product. With the Internet of Things, the, the, if there isn't a subscription and reputation behind whatever it is that you're using, uh, I would think of it the same way, even though the, the hardware isn't free. So, and that, the same would go for smart assistants. It's so funny when I bought my when we bought our home, um, the bank. <laughs> first of all, they give you a, like a like a cash bonus, which I find ironic. I was like, can't you just take that off the value of the mortgage? But anyways, that's fine. They give you money, but they also said, oh, we're going to send you like an Amazon Echo. So they give you all this this stuff, right? So that they give it away. Uh, you know, Amazon Echoes aren't free, but considering that it's a speaker, it's and I or you know ordered it. I've never had one, so I'll test it out. And if I don't like, if I think it's too creepy, I'll go sell it, or I'll keep it in a closet and only open that when I want to ask a question or something. But uh, these things are so inexpensive. I mean, it's totally making money off of collecting data it's it's the services that you get from it are, are it's too convenient i mean it's useful if for some things like i'm an audible user that's one of the few things subscriptions i pay for i have a few subscriptions um so you know it will it, because it's an amazon product and amazon owns audible it'll just play you know this michael malice book that i'm listening to and it'll just go off from wherever i left off on another device so that kind of stuff is cool but i'm always skeptical well, and that's the thing, like, you know, we've even talked about this offline, right? But uh, uh, even though these companies like Amazon and Google are reputable, uh, they also have a reputation. And until you start digging in, and I mean, we've looked at their patents that they've actually registered, and we've discussed that, but uh, they are already planning for so, so many other things uh, where it, basically the devices and this is part of it right where the problem with these smart speakers and so on so the convenience is there obviously but just in if you start looking at it logically speaking if you can go and say alexa and that's the voice prompt that uh, alerts it uh you know or if it was like apple with siri or with google or whatever right uh conceivably the speakers and the the mic for it are always on and so, and it, this is the thing with Amazon. So un unless you actually know about that, they have this thing where it's, it's called payload. And so it's constantly taking in all of this, uh, whatever is being said, recording it, throwing it up onto the cloud for their various uh, algorithms to go through. The way that they're explaining it away is that basically this, uh, this payload that has been uploaded is going to make it that much better for recognizing your voice and you know the uh, voice prompts and other things and what, what you're trying to ask of the d device but you know uh, at the end of it 
it's led to issues where somehow, like for example, there was recordings that were sent to uh, like neighbors, for example, or some other like people off a mailing list. And, and so there's these kind of extra like things. And to be able to delete that payload file up on the cloud, you can do it, but most the average layperson probably couldn't figure it out. And so again, like this is something that where I think, uh, and this is why I touch on this privacy by design, you should have to go and opt in to have those devices constantly record. And then the other thing, just from a hardware standpoint, uh, what people may not realize that, let's say these Nest thermostats or these t smart TVs or whatever there is, uh, they actually hardware-wise, spec-wise, they're overbuilt. And, they're, and again, this is where if you start digging through the patents that they've registered, they've uh, purposely have overbuilt them because in the future, they want to go and add in extra functionality. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I've noticed, for example, is uh, when I walk by my Nest thermostat, sometimes at night, it just lights up. And some people have said that there's actually mics in there and other things. And I mean, I haven't <laughs> taken it apart or whatever, but I wouldn't be surprised if they might even have a camera in there. Who knows, right? Well, they're getting pretty explicit some of them do have a camera you made a good point about uh, opt-in so um this is relevant to security uh, a lot of the um you have to opt out to have privacy so opt-in is default um is all comes from economic choice theory FYI. So if you are interested in security or you're like, why, why do I have to opt out of this data collection? Why can't, why is it that I don't have to opt in? There's some really good empirical economic research that, well, for instance, if you make it so people have to opt out of the company 401k or pension plan, they're less likely to check the box. So therefore they'll get more people to contribute to drive the collective price down or contribution rate. Uh, and that, uh, there's a book about this called Nudge, written by uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And it all talks about uh, the economics of choice. And that's, you know, that's my background is political science and economics. So that it's always been interesting to me because that work really influenced a lot of the technology that we use, um, things that are that require you to opt out for privacy reasons. People are automatically enrolled. And of course, you have to agree to a terms of service before you're automatically enrolled and nobody reads them. It's impossible. And you and I have talked about why they're too long. It takes like, a, you take like 10 years of your life to read all these things and they change all the time. So be very careful. I guess our, our message would be very careful uh, when you sign up for, when you add devices to your network, especially ones that have potential privacy concerns. It is worth uh, looking into them before you add them. On that note, this is probably a good jump to our news section. So there's a, a tech news is thin because it's summer. There is a couple of interesting articles. Uh, one is from Forbes. So it's titled The EdTech Gap Between China and the U.S. And this is uh, written by Ryan Craig. Essentially, the, the article discusses um, how much China outspends uh, the United States both on ed tech uh, as well as education. So for instance, Chinese families will um, throw thousands of yuan uh, to extra education for their family members uh, 
while Americans also spend a fair amount on, on uh, education, um, it, it's still not as much on average as all their, you know, Disney Plus subscriptions and all the other stuff that they have. So it's an interesting article discussing how much China has outspent. Um, but it makes the distinction between kind of an online first approach uh, to getting as much education online as possible uh, that China's taking uh, versus kind of the U.S. approach, which is um, kind of what the author refers to as this on-ground-up approach. So he's, the author argues that if there was any question as to the preferred learning modality, uh, COVID put it to rest. So headlines blared, kids and their teachers say virtual learning isn't working, students have fallen behind in online school, online learning is a bad joke, blah, blah, blah. And now, Chris, you and I would probably debate uh, that online learning is inferior. It certainly has to be done properly, and it's difficult to do. Uh, but he talks about how China's kind of going for quantity with the United States um, investment in terms of ed tech is kind of going towards making tradi more traditional education methods, face-to-face -face college experience, a little bit more flexible to have an online component uh, and to have technologies that kind of allow for more interaction and allow for more uh, engagement in the classroom, which would make things a bit more uh, equitable. Uh, and he talks about some of the uh, the education institutions like SUNY and Georgia State um, and how much they're invested in asynchronous online learning, but um, not uh, forgetting that there is a value to face-to-face um, -face and kind of traditional learning. So kind of trying to combine the best of both worlds. It's something that I can put in the show notes. It's a, it's a very lengthy article and it's quite interesting. Um, but I was surprised to see how much China spends per capita, even on education. It's actually really quite astounding. Um, I don't have much to say about that. It does lead into the second technology. And Chris, you and I have talked about this before in the past. Uh, the experience of applying for universities is historically a sad, sad state. It's brutal. Um, in fact, I don't know what it's like now. Up until very recently, it was very paper-based still as I understand it. But there was an EdTech startup uh, called Unibuddy. So they've raised another $20 million. Uh, this, this article um, uh, talks about how Unibuddy had this 190% growth during the pandemic. So what they do is that it's like a peer-to-peer -peer streamlined system for applying to colleges and universities. So it's right now it's very American-centric. But it's interesting because it kind of um, creates us almost like a social network out of the process. So it says in this article, Unibuddy has provided a first of its kind virtual window into higher education experience for the digitally native Gen Z community. I would debate digital uh, natives as a principle, but I'll leave that aside for now. Uh, when exploring a university's website, applicants from anywhere in the world can chat with existing students and staff in real time about a variety of topics. Popular discussions on the platform center around fitting in, programs of study, um, graduation, employability, student life, admissions requirements, etc. 
And so that what they dis, what they thought the people who found it was is that yeah universities once you get there can provide a great experiment uh, experience and it and you know especially if you're at a community college or something that's relatively affordable in the United States, but if it's not a good fit, that's an expensive mistake. So they streamlined the application, but also the kind of investigative process, which I think is a really smart idea. Um, I was thinking, Chris, about some of the smaller schools in Canada. You and I work at uh, Mount Royal. You also work at UFC, so you have a different perspective. But there's a lot of small institutions in Canada that are really good uh, that'll never get the big headlines like the UBCs and the McGills and the University of Toronto's, but they probably are a really good fit for somebody uh, if they knew more about it. So I'm, I'm wondering if this is a better system for placement. And it could be. I mean, I, I look at, uh, like, for example, Athabasca University. Uh, I didn't realize this, right. uh, but it actually is, uh, there's only in the world, there's maybe like 40 or something that are open universities. And uh, their whole uh, mandate is to make it as accessible as possible. And to that end, for example, uh, somebody as young as 16 can actually take uh, courses and so uh, again it's just that accessibility and that i i think now especially with the the pandemic maybe it's opened up uh, people's um you know perspective and i think athabasca like the, that's the other thing they've been doing online delivery for such a long time but who knows i mean from an application standpoint i wouldn't be surprised uh, that they probably get way less enrollment yeah, I mean, they have a history of kind of doing well and then losing money, which is unfortunate because it's probably a much lower cost institution to run than a traditional face-to-face -face with all the restaurants, though with less revenue too, right? Uh, I've, I, the pandemic has shown me <laughs> how much universities make from things like parking uh, and stuff like that. It's just unbelievable how much it contributes to the bottom line, but you're probably, you're right. Or I think about like Medicine Hat College or Red Deer or, um, you know, even, even the technical schools like Nate and SAIT. I mean, these are really good institutions. They offer a lot of the time technical programs um, that other institutions don't. I, Athabasca, for instance, they have a master's of uh, IT management which I think is really interesting and, and secure and computer security management or something like that. It's a graduate degree, uh, thesis based professional school. So I find it interesting. I, I would hope that, um, a platform like this would make the discoverability of alternative institutions, uh, more viable for people. Cause I think that's desperately needed. Yeah. And I mean, this, it's funny because, again, with education, something like this, uh, I don't know about paper applications. I mean, I haven't interfaced much with the registrar, but uh, I know for a fact, uh, let's say, you know, just writing reference letters to uh, for students and uh, even when I talk to them about like transcripts and other things. So you can request them electronically, but, you know, the transcripts still have to go and uh, be sent through the traditional snail mail. Um, even these references that uh, it's it's interesting. I've uh, written over the last year a number of reference letters for students looking to get into graduate programs, and for some of them, uh, there's it's initiated electronically, where you go and complete um, uh, the reference online, and it's sent to the email. 
for others, it's basically you send it to the student and then they forward it on, which, I mean, who knows they, at that point, it's almost like uh, trying to go and check your references for work, right? I mean, uh, it's like getting a buddy of a buddy or whatever. And, and uh, how do you really verify it? And uh, I mean, that's, it just seems to me such a, a basic thing. Uh, if they could just go and make it streamlined, electronic, you cut down on the, and just the turnaround. I mean, and then beyond that, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest issues in academia is just the uh, being able to see the transferability of courses and uh, what can satisfy the requirements for admission and other things. I mean, actually, it was interesting this past uh, semester as well. I didn't realize this because I never looked into it prior to, but uh, I, yeah, I was dumbfounded by how many students that were looking at applying to um, uh, you know, law school or some of these professional schools like the, you know, med school and so on. And you do not need a master's. In fact, they don't even, many of the programs do not even look at a master's. And so I was teaching in the master's program and I, uh, if it wasn't for Chris, or who's our sound editor, um, engineer, uh, and uh, he was also been my research assistant and teaching assistant as well. But if it wasn't for him, I would have never known. And I, it was uh, even a, many of the students didn't realize that. And so he brought it to their attention where, uh, you know, they did not even know about the requirements. They just figured that having a master's degree would help them or make their chances better to get into some of these professional degrees. But if you think about it, you know, critically, uh, it is a bachelor's degree, just like anything else. So you probably would have been better off just doing another uh undergrad, maybe in sociology or something, boost up your GPA and then apply. Yeah. And I mean, I think when it comes to grad schools, especially professional grad schools, you mentioned medicine, I think. Um, it's not just, a, I mean, academics matter in a relevant field, but it's also an applied. I mean, I think an MD is technically an undergraduate degree, not a graduate degree. Um, they're looking for a lot of things. And it's kind of assumed that a higher level degree always means you kind of get put at the top of the application pile, but that's not necessarily the case. So yeah, again, fit, right? Like I, I've always been interested in doing more education. I don't tell a lot of people this, uh, mostly for my own interest or whatever in the future, who knows, but that doesn't have to be a, a, another master's. It could be, it could be a graduate certificate. You know, you, you have a master's, Chris, you have an MBA. So there's tons of graduate certificates. If you don't need another graduate degree, there's undergrads, there's all sorts of interesting things out there. And I, um, I think there is, as those more specialized, perhaps targeted things expand, I think it's going to be more and more difficult for, or, or more and more necessary, I should say, for colleges and universities or private online education to kind of put themselves on a platform, almost kind of like a, a compare and contrast list through the application process, you know, what is the best fit or something like that. I mean, I, I think there's a value. It would save me so much time. I remember applying to university was a huge chore. Yeah. Well, and uh, things change so much. And then again, even just that those transfer agreements and the accreditation and so on, like it's just so, uh, you know, like a minefield to go and navigate. And I don't know if these advising, um, uh, I guess, uh, representatives within the, the academic institutions, if who knows how the intense pressures of how many students they have to deal with and how much uh, they can actually dig into all this stuff because it's 
changing constantly. So anyways, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice to see some more of these uh, ed tech uh, kind of uh, startups coming into the, uh, the arena and trying to solve some of these bigger issues. Mm-hmm. Um, our final news article is not really an ed tech article, but I wanted to touch on it briefly. Again, written by our friend Scott Galloway at Prof Galloway. Uh, he talks about uh, Robin Hood. So that the article has talked about Robin Hood and eye addiction. So for folks who aren't, well, actually, I, I actually can't even really explain this that well. Chris, you have done a better job of explaining what Robin Hood is. Would it, how would you explain it to some, like an elevator pitch to someone? Yeah, so it's it's basically a platform to go and trade stocks where you don't have to go and pay the the fees and so on. It's more accessible. I think the big thing, especially in this kind of uh, situation and where he focuses more around the eye addiction is uh, the fact that the way that the interface was created, they've basically gamified investing to the point where some uh, people, then many of them were actually younger men, students. I mean, they've actually focused in on certain demographics, which it's been uh, typically younger male uh, kind of demographic. But uh, in any event, some people have actually committed suicide because what they've done is, um, uh, and again, I don't, I, uh, I'm not here to go and lecture on uh, investing and so on. But uh, here, um, uh, they have the option to go and, uh, you know, actually do um, shorts and margin calls and uh, you know options and other things and so uh, some people even though they didn't have the money for it and that's the the thing with these um, uh, you know the the shorts and the options you basically are buying contracts on these stocks and if uh, if it ever and you've seen it this past year with uh, GameStop and other things it if it gets to a point and for some of these people, they didn't realize how much money that they were actually investing and they were over leveraged. And uh, so it got to the point where they literally got stressed out by it. Uh, and uh, they didn't realize because of the way that it was designed and they just got addicted to it. And so, um, you know, it's unfortunate. And I guess the the takeaway or the, the how we're trying to relate it, I mean, there's one aspect that uh, I think, you know, Eric, you wanted to touch upon, but, uh, this is probably the, maybe the closest example of uh, where we talk about gamification and technology and ed tech uh, and just getting students engaged using uh, that, those type of concepts and the interface and so on. And here's a situation where, you know, you conceivably you're trying to, and as uh, the name indicates, like Robinhood, you're cutting down the fees and the access and the cost to get into investments right but what are the unintended consequences of that and so if we go and you know start to, and we don't know that right right now we think that it might be a good idea to go and gamify education and get people they're already on their devices maybe we go and put some sort of app on an iphone and you know what are the repercussions of that and maybe in some cases and i think you touched on this right before we started but maybe we're making it too easy yeah, I mean that's always been my concern. So with Robinhood, I don't I don't really understand how they even make money. If they don't take any fees for transactions. 
Yeah, I mean, I I haven't I haven't really looked into the the full uh, you know how their business model works and stuff, and I'm sure there's probably some way that they they do collect fees somewhere. They must, right? But um, uh, like we in Canada, we have our own versions of this, like Wealth Simple and stuff, right? Uh, and so, uh, which is not quite as gamified. I don't. I, think. I don't think so. Again, I haven't used it, but uh, you know, and there's other things that I guess, uh, and this is where you know the finance industry is ripe for disruption because uh, you can even take some of your stocks, or let's say if you're getting dividends or whatever, and reinvest it, and uh, you know, so. It, and it doesn't have to be like a full share, right? And so this is where there's uh, opportunities for fintech. Like I know of um, a kid here, uh, he's actually going to school at Mount Royal and what he's looking at doing is um, uh, trying to engage people and he's developing a fintech um, uh, app where people can go and invest in companies that they actually uh, go and deal with. So let's say for example, Starbucks or McDonald's and you, whatever you purchase so let's say if it's like 10 bucks at starbucks you can go and round it up to the nearest dollar right. and then that portion gets invested into a starbucks um you know um share so maybe you get like 0.01 starbucks share or whatever but <laughs> at least something's better than nothing and then it gets them into the the habit of investing right and so that's what he's trying to do. But I mean, these are things where like these traditional financial institutions for the longest time have not innovated. They haven't, uh, you know, thought about ways that they could go and do it. And because they've been making crap loads of money, right, just for managing uh, the funds. Right. And so anyways. Yeah, it's it's a really good point about so. There's a couple of things I would say. The reason this article stuck out, stood out to me was because here's an app that streamlines investing because investing and bank websites are shitty and we all know that. So on one end, it's good. But investing requires some thought. I do not give people financial advice. I'm going to make that very clear, just like Chris did. I am not a financial advisor, but I did study economics. But even then, I had to go because I wanted to learn how to invest early the earlier you invest uh, and save money, even if it's cash to start, you get in the habit of saving cash is a good way to start piggy banks. That's why they have them for kids, right? Is that you get used to putting aside everything for a rainy day, an old adage that we all know. But investing in stocks and bonds does require some more information. And even though I studied in university, I knew a difference between a stock was and a bond. But, you know, you have to learn about um, how to diversify, not just among stocks that's that's still one asset class that's equities so how, are there private equity what's what is a bond market do you invest in uh, precious metal i mean art i mean there's tons of stuff to invest so it requires a lot of thought uh, the idea of dividends dividend yield uh, buybacks with no fees i mean there's things to consider but it took me a long time but the to understand this the benefit being that i understand it thoroughly and so it's interesting to me that a platform like this exists and it shows, like you said, the negative consequences of not really understanding what you're engaging with before you do it. So this seems to me like a huge opportunity for someone to come up with a less addictive Robin Hood that also combines some online education on you know, how equities work, how does capital gains tax work, uh, tax free, what is a tax-free savings account, so what is a contribution limit? That would be a great uh, 
opportunity. Um, yeah. I, I think at least for someone to develop. Well, and it's, it's interesting, you know, like I, I just remembered right now, I, uh, some of my students this past semester, especially the, the ones that were uh, in the master's program, they were day trading as well while going to school. And some of them were saying that, uh, you know, we're uh, making so much more money than we would if we were working at a job. And sure, I mean, depending on what you're putting in a booming, yeah, market. In a booming market and by when you're going to lose your shirt, like, for example, like, let's say Bitcoin, you know, one day uh, Elon Musk is saying that they're investing heavily. Next thing you know, he tweets out something else and uh, Bitcoin goes down. And so depending on what side of uh, from a timing perspective where you're at. I mean, who knows, right? It's uh, sure you can maybe make money and especially, and this is part of the, the thing like these, I think this past year and a half because we were all at home. And so things like Robin Hood did take off and, you know, people, the, somehow many of them were making crap loads of money. And if you look at it, I still don't personally from a uh, investing uh, or investment standpoint, I don't understand how some of these companies are worth trillions of dollars. I mean, I look at companies like Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. Not only have they, you know, increased, like broke that one trillion market cap. I mean, I was looking at Apple the other day. It's at two point something trillion now. What's fundamentally? At least they make a product. Well, that's true. Like they ship a device. Yeah. You know, where, where some of these services companies that don't even have a history of profits are being bought for tons of money. And, I, and to relate this to education, though, one of the things that you mentioned was about gamification. So the problem with gamification on the finances side is that you, like you said, you can lose your shirt because you didn't know what you were talking about. We didn't know what you were doing. And if everybody's investing because everyone's at home and not spending money and, it's a bull, and there's a bull market, everybody can be a winner. The real winners are the people who survive bad markets. Uh, anybody can make, you know, sell a house in a hot real estate market. It's tough to be a really good realtor in a, in a crappy real estate market. It's just, you know, a buyer's market, for instance. So it, when we think about education and we think about gamification, the reason it stuck out to me was what are the unintended, the potential unintended consequences of gamifying education, right? Now, I don't think it's the same as this. But there could be, and we have talked on this podcast ad nauseum about practice in time management and deep work, and these things are difficult, and it's more difficult for some people than others. But if you rob people of the opportunity to develop what is essentially the difficult work by doing it, does that make education too engaging and too easy? Like, what are you going to do? So if you, if you only know how to invest in a hot market, what are you going to do in a bad market? If you only know how to learn in a carnival style classroom, what are you going to do when it's not? Yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, and this is the, like, even if you think about it, there's certain <clears throat> neural pathways that get created. Like, you know, for example, like, I don't even know what's going to happen. Like my daughter is going to be going, uh, entering kindergarten this past year. And they've already told us we got to go and have Chromebooks. And I'm uh, even thinking like, uh, are they just going to go right on the computer right away? I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, um, uh, she actually, like, we just bought, like, this uh, uh, camera. Like, it was just a little small, like, camera that where you can go and um, add um, certain layouts and other animations and other things. So, you know, something that she can drop and nothing happens. I could not even figure out the interface 
like initially without looking at it like the, and she figured it out right away so already like you know the next generation i feel like i'm sounding like i'm old or something but uh well it's true you know, though, right but, i mean it's a, you grow up with something you learn it fast yeah. just like kids learn language but I, I sometimes wonder about like some of these things like let's say even let's say um calculations right math like we grew up in an age where we, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but uh, we had to memorize the whole multiplication table, right? Oh yeah, we had to do yeah. that. Yeah, and so I wonder if the new generation, who knows, they might be just using like the, the calculators and then it becomes something that, uh, you know, because we're not instilling some of those values. Uh, and again, what are the long-term repercussions of that? I mean, are we going to develop the same type of neural pathways and connections and other things? And is it actually going to be a downfall for us? Yeah. I mean, it's true. Um, and I'm sure my parents said the same things when I went to school, though it wasn't quite as different as it is now. I do feel in many ways that I was probably the last, we did have computers, so I did have paper on word processors. That was a big change. But even the internet was pretty mediocre when I was in high school. It wasn't that different other than word processing, which my parents had learned to do later. So I feel like I was probably the last generation my age, I'm not that old, 33, that probably had an education. And now it's like total, it's like a hockey stick, it seems. It's drastically changed. But it, I don't know. This, I guess this article is kind of tangentially related to education. It just spurred my imagination. And, uh, you know, we've had a thin news cycle in the summer. And uh, like any good educator, you know, restrictions create creativity. So let's uh, go out on the yeah. limb and talk about well, something tangentially related. Whenever we can bring in Scott Galloway, why not? <laughs> yeah, I like Scott Galloway because he's good at calling bullshit. And I appreciate that. Uh, he's not afraid to say what he thinks. So it. Yeah, he does add a very good perspective, and he has an excellent blog. I guess with that, should we get on to the uh, the discussion item, the, the big deal? The big deal, the window dressing? <laughs> yes, the window dressing. So Microsoft announced the next last version of Windows. Actually, that's not true. So it's a bit of a joke. When Windows 10 was announced, somebody, not Microsoft, said... It was going to be the last version of Windows. And you know how somebody says something that's not really from the horse's mouth, but it just becomes the truth if you repeat it long enough? So all the tech blogs are like, it's the last version of Windows. Maybe he was a VP. He was involved with Microsoft somehow. Anyways, Microsoft never said that. So we've all been thinking Windows 10 was just going to be updated like Mac OS 10 forever, and it would stay like that. Uh, but Microsoft was like, no, we never promised it, and we were announcing Windows 11. So it is valuable. Uh, it is, we're going to talk about Windows 11 a little bit um, because there is a significant focus on uh, not just productivity. Microsoft is the productivity king, at least as a company, but also on education. So uh, they do have an article. Microsoft put out a couple of press releases. Uh, but they put out a press release for Windows 11. So then... And Windows 11, I should preface, is essentially Windows 10 with a slightly revised interface. Uh, I'm sure it'll be better and improvements. It's kind of like lipstick on a pig. That's kind of <laughs> mean. It, I don't mind Windows 10. I think Windows 10 is fine. It's not as good as Windows 7, but Windows 10 is fine. Um, but they did release a, a press release from their education blog. So Microsoft actually 
It's called edu it's educationblog.microsoft.com if you want to go read it. It's really interesting, and there's tons of information that you can link to about uh, Office for Education. I mean, they have some really good resources I think are highly underused. But they note a couple of key things to entice and interest educators. The first is accessibility. So this is, uh, you and I have talked about usability and accessibility uh, by design in the past, but Windows 11 is interesting because it's a desktop operating system, but also a touchscreen operating system. Again, they're going after this one operating system for all kind of approach, unlike Apple, which has different ones, revised ones for different platforms. Uh, and when you go into touchscreen mode on Windows 11, the icons get bigger, the touch targets get bigger, so it kind of morphs slightly in a familiar way into a touchscreen interface. But they talk about the importance of, of uh, accessibility and kind of distraction-free interface to focus on learning and education regardless of the device that you're using. So this is kind of how they're pivoting it. So they say Windows 11 uses the latest advances in user-centered design to create more intuitive, more productive interfaces that leaves students and teachers free to focus on education. On touchscreen devices, users will find an enhanced experience with greater accessibility and more adaptive user controls that make it easier to type as well as move and resize windows. And we'll talk about like kind of the snap productivity stuff. It talks about pen interfaces. Um, they talk about enhancing learning outcomes. Uh, so this they say this release also offers new tools that reduce distraction from smart cameras that blur the background movement to settings that minimize visual clutter. So they're kind of tying into that focus, deep work. Microsoft talks a lot about flow states, and there's actually some psychological research on flow states. Uh, and they say that these innovations will enable all learners to focus and do their best work, uh, whether they're at home or in the classroom. They also talk about uh, security and privacy. So the most secure version of Windows ever, I believe it when I see it. And then, of course, built for learning everywhere because we've done a year of remote learning. Um, interesting to me that they, they wrote an article on their education blog to target. Yeah, well, they got to sell it to somebody, right? <laughs> well, and, and the rumor is, is that the, the PC and the, or the window, the computer industry did so well during the pandemic that it only has one where to go now, which is down because everyone bought their laptop at home, right? So how do they boost sales in the, we have to release Windows 11 and typically people don't upgrade Windows, they buy a new device with it. That's historically how it works. It's less of an upgrade culture. Yeah. You usually run that device with that version of Windows till it dies unless you're like, that's like what my dad does until you're forced to leave Windows 7. Well, and I mean, right. it's uh, if you look at even with Windows 10, it was interesting for the longest time. I don't know if it's still valid, but I, I remember even a couple of years back, um, even though they had ended the free upgrade from Windows 8 to 10 for anybody who uh, was able to, um, you know, wanted to take a, advantage of it, you could still go and do that. And so it was, and that was, I think that was the first time that they ever actually uh, did it for free because Windows 8 was just so terrible. Uh, I mean, it's, it's funny because if you think about it, like, I mean, Windows 8, they actually skipped over 9 and went right to 10 uh, just to kind of get away maybe from that stigma. But it's, um, I, it's one of those examples that I actually bring up um, with my students quite a bit because here you had a company conceivably with 
the most brilliant, smartest, you know, all sorts of resources for whether it's marketing, uh, design, computer scientists, so on. And, uh, you know, they were Windows 8 was supposed to be the the best ever and it wasn't it didn't live up it was kind of actually what they did was they actually alienated their user base because um, nobody could figure out the tile interface and so like uh, my first impression yeah. it's uh, just from looking at the screenshots uh, i mean i haven't used this windows 11 but it it looks more like windows the only difference that I find, it's kind of interesting how they have that bar at the bottom and uh, it looks, like a, looks like a Mac with like Windows kind of look. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So that is, a, that is an excellent observation. And I will put links to, uh, there's three articles by uh, Paul Thorot. He's been covering Microsoft and journalism for like 25 plus years. So he has three articles, first impressions, um, some more shots or ideas, observations, and then uh, an article about snap groups. So for the people listening, we don't have a video podcast at this time. Essentially, uh, your taskbar is shifted to the middle uh, and the start button is now a flat four tile window icon. And when you click on the start button, rather than bringing it up on the bottom left, it brings it up into the center of the screen. It works a lot like the launch pad on the Mac, actually. And then in there, you can find your apps and you can search uh, and you can do all the things you expect to do. Uh, they have rounded corners on all the windows, which I think is a, a ridiculous. I don't know why they bother doing that. It's like following in Apple's footsteps. They should have gone in the other direction. Um, but it looks a lot like Windows 10 with a, with you know a, a more tablety Macy uh, style interface essentially. Um, so we'll see. Um, they're trying to entice a wider variety of devices or entice people to use a wide, wider variety of devices that are helpful for Windows, which or that makes sense for Windows, which which is useful for compatibility reasons. Um, if you can run the same operating system and have compatibility on a surface and a laptop and a desktop, that's a little bit more unified than what companies like Apple have done. Yeah. Although, I mean, as we covered in that, um, you know, Apple event, it looks like Apple is kind of going in the same direction where there's going to be a bit of a convergence. Uh, and it, even if there isn't a convergence, it seems like they're becoming a little bit more compatible, those devices. But it'll be interesting to see. But I mean, I I think it is probably a step in in the right directions for uh, for Windows. Like it's, it's kind of going back to what it, you know, and it's interesting how you mentioned it's like more of a tablet-y, uh, Apple-y, <laughs> mac -y kind of uh, uh, vibe. Um, but I mean, this is where it's uh, uh, it's unfortunate. I mean, really, they, and that's where like that Windows 8, I think they just went, it was too big of a departure. And they really haven't uh, been able to recover since then because um, uh, even with Windows 10, it just seems like uh, it, it, it is similar to what that Windows 8, like it's almost like two different kind of... Uh, operating systems built into one even just how you access certain features and it's it's somewhat confusing i think and that's where i mean here i am uh, somebody who I, I consider myself pretty tech savvy or at least comfortable 
if I'm having issues, I'm sure other people probably who uh, were used to it being in a certain way are probably having issues as well. Well, and you, that's a good point. And from an educator standpoint, the thing that I'm going to be looking for is consistency across the interface. So as a librarian, I see a lot of people at a library service desk because I'm in a technology enthusiast you know, my job is to educate people on research, but if they have a question, hey, I'm trying to come up with a system to organize this, I'm on Windows 10, I don't really understand how to use this feature, I can, I'll totally show them. One of the things that's been a problem in Windows is either too many ways to get to the same place. So, you know, how many ways do they get to the downloads folder, like yeah. infinite. Um, and also inconsistency in what menus look like. So if you go into the start menu in the file explorer, there's some inconsistency, but generally, and I think it will improve with this release. You know, the icons look more modern, but then you go into the control panel and you dig into the settings and it looks like a holdover from Windows 95. So it, to the user, it seems like you've left the interface and you've gone to somewhere you shouldn't. And I think it scares people because once you depart visually into an area that looks radically different, people think that they're in a place that they shouldn't be, or that's like for power users. So I'm hoping this helps. Another thing that Windows has going against it is that it has a lot of great features that are like the Mac and like the iPad are not until recently are not very discoverable. So Windows as its name is the best operating system for managing application windows. It's always been, it's always been better than the Mac. You have to get a third party tool to do proper Windows management on the Mac, do side by side. And uh, starting in Windows Vista, I think, or Windows 7, you could snap, just drag the app to the left of the screen and, and it snaps. So there's a, there's a few things for productivity that I hope are, are useful to educators. I think that they would like. So if you like press and hold, for instance, on the, the button that makes it go full screen, the app, you get like a layout. Do you want this to be half of the screen, uh, you know, two thirds of the screen? Do you want it to be one quarter of the screen? And And so it just gives you options for create putting this app in like a grid or something like that so i hope that these features that really streamline organizing a workspace for both faculty and students are made a little bit more uh discoverable in this i think the snap focus uh i don't know why they didn't do this before but you can have groups of dual window apps so you can have like multiple instances of apps that are side by side and it just seems from a productivity standpoint, um, you know, it's a lot better along with streamlining uh, the user interface design. And that's a good point. I mean, you can do some of that in Apple as well, like in the Mac OS. But again, figuring it out, right, it's, I mean, I didn't know about it for the longest time. And uh, so, again, it's just uh, not that intuitive. Yeah, and I think uh, this is where Windows has an advantage. So if they can find a way to keep the interface the same across devices. Uh, that's helpful for students. It's, it's, it's a shame they don't make a phone anymore. I think Windows Phone had the best interface because it was so easy to use. It was so simple. Um, but it's an interesting, uh, an interesting point. Um, is there anything else? I feel like we've covered pretty much everything. That discussion was shorter than I expected. Yeah. Uh, we don't have it yet. So when, I think when there's a review, maybe we'll return to this. Yeah, for sure. I think that's safe to say. Um, but we don't have Windows 11. Uh, it is in the Insiders build. So if you have a win if you have a Windows computer and you want to be like a beta tester, you can join Microsoft Insiders community. I I've actually done that for the Xbox and stuff. It's kind of cool. 
you can kind of choose which version of the insiders. Do you want to be the beta? Do you want to be the canary? Do you want to be the super alpha build? Uh, and you can get those features and you can submit feedback. Uh, Microsoft has actually a really good system for that. Uh, there's like these different rings you can be in in terms of being ahead of the game as a beta tester. So I think you can get Windows 11 now as an insider. Um, so you, you could try it out, or if you have a version, I, I'm wondering if I can make it work on my Mac, because I do have Windows 10 installed on my Mac in a, in a separate instance, so that would be something to test. I don't think my work computer would allow me. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a bad idea, huh? But it'll be rolled out, I think, in the fall. I think it's coming pretty quick, too. This is not like um, you know, a long rollout. I think it's pretty much done. Yeah, I think so. Uh, our last segment of today is our EdTech tips. So, uh, Chris, did you want to kick it off with the embedded questions? Yeah. So, stuff. So there was, uh, yeah, there was this one uh, kind of uh, post that I came across, and I thought it was interesting. It's, a, it's such a very simple kind of uh, uh, tactic, but basically, what they did was they, uh, for those who are interested in using podcasts for uh, educational pur purposes, they found. Uh, by just introducing questions and you know putting in sections for pausing and, and that kind of thing, it actually increased the knowledge acquisition and retention. And so they even did a bit of a study. I mean, the study on it is a little bit, um, I mean, they probably maybe need to do more, some more users or, or what have you. But it, to me, I mean, whether the, uh, the validity of the research is um, sufficient or not, that's not really the, uh, the point. The more was the just the fact that by including some of those, and I mean, this is where it's uh, now what you're doing is you're taking some of the, the practices in the classroom where you might have some sort of topic and let people think about it. And then you have more discussion in class. Uh, I, I think that it just opens up the opportunities. And um, so I, I just found it a really kind of interesting article to kind of bring for the podcast here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of embedding questions in whatever it is you're doing is not unheard of, but I, it never occurred to me to do it in, in a podcast. Um, it's interesting because you, we host this podcast on a, on a platform called Castos, and they're kind of making, uh, doing a different take. I mean, they you can publish public podcasts, but they also have this whole private podcasting approach. So if you want to make something private just for your class and embed questions, uh, that's becoming a thing. Again, an example of kind of active learning rather than passive, right? Yeah, for sure. Even recently, I've been, uh, it's kind of funny, I've uh, downloaded this one book, and they actually have exercises, but because it's through the library, I don't have access to the exercises, so I just have to kind of listen to it. But I I think it would have been kind of a cool experience, because here you are, you're listening to the, the author, and the author is actually reading the, the book herself. And then she gives you some creativity type of exercise to go and do. But um, I, I thought that was kind of a cool approach and kind of builds that. That's even taking it one step further, right? Where you would have like a worksheet to go and do some type of exercise on. I kind of like that. Um, adding questions or adding extra discussion. Kind of what is it? Breaking the fourth wall. Of the of the person, um, you remember textbooks? You remember textbooks? What a great question! <laughs> Do you remember when textbooks had those like callouts where they had like a different colored box and it would be like, think about these things. Like, what do you think of X would happen? And yeah. I really enjoyed that in textbooks. I found that to be the most engaging part. Recently, I listened to 
David Goggins, that's the author. David Goggins is an American serviceman, retired American serviceman. He wrote a book called Can't Hurt Me, which is really interesting. It's on Audible. But I listened to the audiobook, and after it's someone else reading it. And after the chapters, David and the guy reading it do a, his ghost, well, his partner who helped him write it, do this podcast embedded in episodes throughout the book, explaining other details and sidetracks. And anyways, it's an interesting concept that you have the primary content, whether it be a podcast or a book or a textbook. And then you have these kind of other things that you can go along to, um, to kind of add extra content or to make people think about the, the lessons that the takeaways. That is interesting. It's all, it's almost like a director's cut. Yeah, exactly. It's like a director's cut that you can't, that's embedded in rather than a separate thing. Yeah. Right. Um, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really opened up like I, right now, um, it's funny cause we just got the deadline for submitting our course of outlines which I wasn't even aware of uh, so far in advance, but it, it got me thinking about like, you know, now that I've done the course delivery online and we're going to go back into the classroom, but there's certain things that we did online and maybe we should still do it for people who, um, you know, want to have that extra value add. It's not going to be a requirement, but I'm finding, I'm thinking about ways how I could integrate some of that. And so, uh, uh, really that was why I just wanted to kind of touch on it because it just seems so intuitive, right? It's just, it's a different medium, really. That's the, the big difference, right? Or even uh, you could have a regular class and even if you created like a podcast for students, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I've always thought about, you know, you have your primary content that you deliver in the classroom, but what if you had some extra thoughts about the lesson that doesn't really fit in the time frame of a lecture court class, but you wanted to record your ideas. You know, here's why I taught it this way. And here's some things to consider, maybe exceptions to the rule. And then that's posted extra, right? I think that stuff is interesting. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, and that's where like it's because uh, especially here, I, and I don't know about other institutions, but at Mount Royal, for example, there are going to be a certain number of classes uh, that are going to be both online as well as in person and I'm going to be teaching some classes that are actually going to be and it's going to be the same course but like hybrid both mediums so well one is like well it's not even hybrid but basically there's a, a course section that will be online only and then the other one will be in person and so I'm thinking of ways right now uh, of developing some of that online content, which I might make available to the, the people that are taking a face-to-face class as well, right? And so then it's an extra bonus, things that I may not necessarily touch upon otherwise. So um, just kind of thinking about that. And this, this is where I think it's, a, it's one of those discussions uh, for us as educators, uh, you know, just because uh, this last year, we've had to go to this emergency remote delivery. There probably are a lot of things that we could bring in. And in the past, I think I've, we've had this discussion about even online delivery. Some of the best practices include not recording lectures, right? I mean, the, this is uh, what I've been for the longest time. A lot of my online uh, delivery, I don't have any lectures. I'll have some synchronous sessions where I go over topics or what have you. Um, and, uh, 
It's interesting because I think some people over this past year, a year and a half, there's a bit of experimentation, I suppose. But I just in some anecdotal kind of conversations with uh, students and so on, it appears that some students, they actually go back to those recordings of any kind of synchronous sessions and they uh, it, it just helps reinforce some of those concepts and stuff. And that's why, uh, again, I think it's if we take... Uh, some of the learnings from this and maybe find ways of uh, then it becomes a little bit more of that hybrid kind of uh, opportunity right yeah i think so i think there's a lot of opportunities to kind of play around with what can go online and what needs to be recorded and what doesn't or what could be text uh, so it'll be interesting we've put everybody who's an educator into this mode of thought so i'm assuming that we'll get some interesting solutions as a result um the last item for the edtech tips uh something that i'm bringing up only because i've been in the throes of researching it are uh, extending wi-fi signals so if you work and if you're going back to work at a university you probably don't have to worry about the strength of the university wi-fi those are usually fiber connections you have both wired and wireless in every office but if you're at home and you're in a house like I am now and you want to, let's say you have the, you know, the, the modem in the basement, the wireless modem, uh, or it's on one floor and you're trying to get it to a dead spot on the second floor, how do you extend that signal? So I started looking into, uh, there's things called mesh networks. Uh, Amazon has a product called the Eero. But as I understand it, if you have an okay signal, from your wireless modem, probably the easiest thing that you can do to eliminate dead spots is to use a Wi-Fi extender or a signal booster. So I can put an article into the wire cutter. So I started using some. So uh, there's a couple of options. Um, the ones that I'd recommend are probably from TP-Link. There's one that's about uh, 30 bucks, the RE220. And the way these work is that you have to, it's essentially like a, you know, a carbon monoxide detector or a nightlight. It plugs right into the electrical outlet. And when you set it up, you have to plug one of these extenders into an electrical outlet very, very close to um, your wireless modem from your internet service provider. In the case of the setup for these TP-Link ones, you basically just have to click on the sync button on your wireless modem from your uh, service provider. And then you have to click, click a similar button on the Wi-Fi booster and then it'll, it'll detect the syncing signal and then it'll start relaying uh, the signal from your wireless modem. And then once you've done that setup the first time, uh, you can take these within reason and you can put them to other places in the house. So uh, for instance, I put one downstairs um, and it was a little bit too far away from the wireless modem. So you, you can't put them anywhere. So then I had to move it to a slightly closer plug in the basement and the sim similar thing upstairs. But then you get a really solid signal uh, as a result of that. One of the cool things as well is that let's say you need a wireless signal to go further and then you also have a device that's not wireless. So you can extend the wireless signal, but you can also plug in uh, an ethernet cable 
directly into the Wi-Fi booster. So the Wi-Fi booster is connected to the modem via wireless, but then you can connect something else to that uh, via um, a Cat6 uh, Ethernet cable, and it'll appear as if it's wired in, which is pretty cool. Um, so this is something I've been playing with. If you're still working from home, uh, or maybe you've, like me, uh, what did my colleagues say? And when he talked about the crazy housing industry, he called it like bourgeois fever dreams, which I thought was pretty funny. If you're like one of us people who bought a house um, to get out of your small place and you need to extend your Wi-Fi, um, I've been playing with these boosters and there's quite a few of them. And I'll put a, a wire cutter article in the show notes. So Eric, like who's your internet service provider? Shaw. So I have like so- an okay signal downstairs. It's actually pretty good. I'm on Wi-Fi right now. Uh, it's upstairs. That It's not a dead spot. It's just kind of like a three out of five bar. So when you're doing video conferencing, it can be a bit choppy. So it was just to beef up an existing signal that you could see, but that wasn't as ideal as it could be. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because uh, so I'm with TELUS and they actually provided us with Wi-Fi boosters. Mm-hmm. I don't know how great they are, but um, uh what I've done is I've put uh, one, just like how you're saying, so it, it's connected to the modem and uh, it's on the main level of our house and that's supposed to boost the signal throughout our upper levels. And then I put one in the basement and uh, and then that is supposed to extend that, um, you know, the, the Wi-Fi coverage. But then beyond that, prior to that, and we talked about this right before we were chatting, but uh, uh, what I actually did was I used some power over Ethernet uh, adapters. And so I got uh, ones from um, D-Link, and this was years ago. So uh, again, I'm sure the technology has gotten better, but it's uh, basically what you can do is you plug one in where your modem is, and then through the power lines, it basically sends the signal for the internet throughout. So you get an actual wired connection. And I, I've tested it out. It uh, you know, you get a little bit of a, a loss, right, in terms mm-hmm. of speed, but it is better than Wi-Fi. It's much more stable and reliable. And so, uh, and it's uh, expandable. So uh, again, especially for those houses that don't have uh, Cat5, Cat6, just running throughout the house, uh, it's a good option that way. Um, so, uh, and I know that like with the mesh network, we have covered it, I believe it was maybe with... Uh, that episode with uh, Mohammed Kayani, mm-hmm. uh, where we were talking about uh, mesh network, and he used Google. Uh, I mean, it was relatively newer kind of technology, uh, and uh, I, I think for the cost-wise, you might be better off just doing some of these like Wi-Fi boosters, or maybe a combination of uh, some of these. Yeah, the options. Wi-Fi boosters are the, probably the cheapest start. I think they're about thirty bucks for the, a decent TP-Link booster. Uh, I think the power Ethernet would be. A little bit more, but similar if you want a good one. The mesh yeah. networks are expensive. So I looked into this a little bit. I don't quite understand the downsides of mesh. Something to do with coverage plus interference. There, There's instances I don't fully understand it, so I'm not going to explain it where it doesn't work well. But it's also, it also comes in a kit. And so the Amazon Eero, or I think Amazon bought Eero, which was one of the big, the, com- the first mesh network companies. The idea is, is that you have these relay points similar to a Wi-Fi extender, and they kind of create this unbelievable coverage and work together. Uh, it's a little bit more comprehensive, but they're, you know, two, $300 for a set. So uh, it depends what you need. I think if you have, 
you're trying to get a really reliable Wi-Fi connection. Like I have a lot of mobile devices, so the Ethernet is only needed really. I mean, I'm on Wi-Fi now recording, and it's pretty good because actually the, it's right above me. Um, so it's it's not bad. I think it... I think if you just say, you know, I want to use my laptop or my iPad or my phone in bed and it's some dead spots and I don't want to use my cellular connection, then, you know, sticking a booster somewhere is good enough. It kind of depends on the type of house, the layout of your house and how far you have to go. The, the nice thing about these extenders is that uh, as TP-Link is pretty reliable and the different models will tell you they're more expensive based on how much square footage they have to cover. So I'm not covering a huge amount of square footage. My house is, you know, 1,500 square feet plus a small basement. So it's not a big place um, relative. So uh, you can spend a lot more on these um, and, and get even more coverage. But I can see if I can find some uh, comparisons to mesh networks as well. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, even I, I didn't realize like, it's been so many years that I've had those power line adapters from D-Link. But uh, it looks like the, the going raid uh, just on Best Buy, it's like the, the mini ones are like 60 bucks. Yeah. And then if you want to have ones with like three ports, they're more. And if you want like gigabit and, and so on. So when it's dependent, probably on your, in this... it's dependent on your connection, like some houses, especially if you have a house from the 50s, you're going to have pretty dirty wiring. So you may get yeah. a lot of interference. My house is 1970. So maybe it's okay. I could try it. It would be a good test. But it, I think if you have a house from 2000s onward, you're probably going to get a better connection. Yeah. That's my guess. That's my totally un, uh, unsubstantiated claim uh, based on the very limited amount of research that I did. But we'll see. I'll continue to monitor how it works, and I will report back if it breaks. I'll have to eat my hat. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So with that, Chris, did you want to tell our listeners how they can contact you? Yeah, so you can find me on my personal website. It's uh, Chris with a K, K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S dot C-A. Um, and my uh, social media handles are on there. And my name is Eric Christensen. And you can find me on my website, ericchristensen.net, Twitter at E.G. Christensen. And I also write about technology at techbytes.net. That's tech-bytes.net. I have taken a fairly long half-year hiatus, but I plan to get back into it starting this summer. That sounds good. That's about it. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, thanks. Take care. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.